Hope you uh, picked up a, a copy of the uh, sermon notes as you uh, came in this morning as we continue uh, our study, uh, The Good Hand of God, Restoring and Preserving uh, His People, which is a study of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, which cover the last 100 years of Old Testament history. The three books focus on the restoration and preservation of the Jewish people uh, following their defeat uh, to the Babylonian army, uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people being taken captive into Babylon, which all came about as a result of God's judgment on their sin. Just as there were three deportations of Jews to Babylon, there were three Jewish returns to Jerusalem. The book of Ezra focuses on the first two returns. The first six chapters are the record of the first return, and the last four chapters, the second return. The overarching theme of the book is found in the book of Lamentations, which is the prophet Jeremiah's sobbing and sorrowful lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of God's people into Babylon. Right in the middle of Jeremiah's lamentation, you find the word hope five times. Where did Jeremiah find hope? He tells us, the Lord's loving, loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail, for they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion. That last phrase, if he causes grief, then he will have compassion, really captures the heart of the book of Ezra. Yes, God had brought grief to his covenant people because judgment had become necessary. And the grief they experienced was richly deserved. But now the time of their captivity was over and the Lord would be compassionate and he would restore his people because if he causes grief, then he will have compassion. What God did for his people then, he will do for you and me today. When it comes to God's people, the last word will never be our failure. It will be the triumph of God's love. Now today, we come to the fourth lesson in our study, which I've entitled, The Work of Rebuilding the Temple, as we continue to examine the record of that first group of Jews that returned to Jerusalem. Now, we've already seen in previous messages how the sovereign God, as Andy mentioned, who causes all things to work together for the good of his people, literally overruled in world affairs 
to bring about the demise of the Babylonian empire where his people were in captivity, and he brought that demise by the hands of the Persian empire. We saw how God moved in the heart of Cyrus, the Persian king, and he issued a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple. We saw how the prophet Isaiah actually foretold that. 150 years before Cyrus was ever born, and he actually names Cyrus in the prophecy, an amazing prophecy. We followed that 50,000 Jews who, under the leadership of Jerubbabel, who was a descendant of King David, uh, made that very difficult and dangerous thousand-mile journey uh, back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Now, in our last lesson, we looked at one of the most valuable lessons you can learn in the book of Ezra, and that is the road you must travel from ruin to restoration. What are the steps you must take to return to God after a time of sin and backsliding from the Lord? Well, the first step, as we saw last Sunday, was you have to return to the place of blessing. And how do you do that? First, you have to get honest about your backslidden condition and the consequences that it has caused. Then you have to become hurt, not over the consequences, but over the fact that your sin damaged God's reputation. And then you just have to start heading back to God. As Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations, why should we, mere humans, complain when we are punished for our sins by God? Instead, let us test and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Make that about face and turn back to the Lord. The second step, we have to rebuild the altar of the sacrifice. Now, we saw last week the returning Jews literally had to rebuild the altar that had been destroyed by the Babylonians uh, many years prior uh, at the time of their invasion. But for believers today, our altar is what? The cross. Well, we don't have to so much rebuild the cross as what? Return to the cross to receive forgiveness through the blood of the one sacrificed for you and to surrender your life to live for the one who died for you. It's only at the cross, through the blood of Christ shed for you, do you find the assurance of forgiveness and the confidence that God is with you and he is for you going forward. And then the third step was to reestablish the priority of worship as we've emphasized already in this service this morning. How? By first reconnecting in fellowship with God's people. And you reconnect for the purpose to learn, love, and live God's Word, to invest your time, your talents, and your treasure to complete God's work, and then to live your life in order to exalt, enjoy, and display God's worth to a lost world. Now, with that review, look with me now in your notes at the introduction to uh, this morning's message. When the first group of Jews returned to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon, 
they immediately rebuilt the altar of sacrifice, indicating that worship of God would now be their first priority. And we saw that last week in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Through the blood of the sacrifices, as I just mentioned, they found assurance of God's forgiveness for past sin that had led them into captivity. They found confidence that God's presence would be with them going forward. Attention is then turned to rebuilding the temple, with the foundation of the temple being laid within six months of their return, which we see in Ezra chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. So uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, and I want you to see four truths. Hopefully, we can get to all of them this morning. I may not complete the message. It may take me two weeks, but we'll see. Uh, I want you to see four truths related to the work of rebuilding the uh, the, uh, temple. And look at that first truth first in your sermon notes, the passion of the people. Uh, Motivated by love for God, all the returning Jews became enthusiastically involved in rebuilding the temple in a beautiful picture of sacrificial giving, teamwork, and organization with, and this is the key, each person, literally each and every person employing their gifts and talents to complete the work. Look at Ezra chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and nine. Ezra chapter 3, verses 7, 8, and 9. Then they gave money. Notice, they went into their pocketbooks, and they gave money. They invested their material resources to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon word that they would need to rebuild the temple, to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Jerubbabel, that was their, the civil leader, again, descendant of David, the son of uh, Zetiel and uh, Jeshua, uh, the son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, And all who came from captivity, and circle that word all, all who came from captivity to Jerusalem began the work. And appointed the least, Levites, those are the priests, from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua, he was the high priest, he's also called Joshua in the book, with his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel, another leading priest, and his sons, the sons of Jude and the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen, workmen in the temple of God. So you see this tremendous picture of excitement, enthusiasm, as the people come together, organized, uh, various responsibilities delegated out. Now, what is the application for us today? What is the application for us today? We're told in the New Testament that we are living stones. What a beautiful picture. That we, you and I, are living stones, and we are being built up into a spiritual temple. A spiritual temple for what? See, today the temple is not brick and mortar. This is just a place where we come to corporate work. We are God's temple. 
And we are God's temple to provide Christ a home, a home in our hearts, a home in our church family, a home where Jesus will know absolutely no rival. There'll be never a single refusal of Christ. No retreat from what he's asked us to be or what he's asked us to do. We are the bride of Christ to worship him as our first love. We are the body of Christ. It's not about coming to church as much as it is about what? Being the church. To walk as Jesus walked. To love one another. To extend that love to a lost world. In Christ's temple, there are no spectators. Only participants. Participants in worship and in the work to be done. Look in your notes at Ephesians 4, verse 16. This is the application to the church age today. Notice, he, Jesus, makes the whole body, that's you and I, the church family, fit together perfectly. Sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. And we're each a piece of that jigsaw puzzle. And when we all come together, you, bottom line, get a beautiful picture of Jesus. But notice the second sentence. As each part, who's that referring to? You and me. Notice, each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So just like these returning Jews all became involved, each one, you and I in God's family need to discover the unique role, the unique place of service that God has for us. You've heard me often say from this pulpit, I believe every member of Edgewood Baptist Church should have a ministry and a mission. When I use the word ministry, I'm talking about how are you plugged into the church family to benefit others in the church family, to build them up, to serve them. And then your mission would be where are you touching a lost world? And hopefully you're fishing in the pond that God has placed you in. Uh, your workplace, your neighborhood, or the school, or wherever it might be. But every believer should have that ministry where he's plugged into the body of Christ to build up other believers, as well as having a mission to reach a lost world for Christ. So that's the passion of the people. Look at the second truth. The pattern followed. The pattern followed. The spiritual leaders... The priest and the Levites, and we just read this, were given responsibility to oversee the work and the workers to ensure everything was done in accordance with the Bible's blueprint, the Bible's blueprint for the temple. And again, did you notice the double mention of oversee in, verses in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9? It was the spiritual leaders, the priests that were delegated the responsibility to oversee the work, to oversee the workers, to again ensure everything was done according to the biblical blueprint. What is the application today in the church? Let's go back to Ephesians 4. This time look at verses 11 and 12. And he, Christ, gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists. And notice, some as pastors, that should be actually not pastors and teachers, but pastors sort of slash teachers, referring to the same individuals, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. 
where the Jews had their priests, the church today has pastor teachers, which is synonymous for a plurality of elders. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches, that in a church family, like our church family, there should be a plurality, not a single pastor teacher, but a plurality of elders. And it's very interesting that one of the words that's used to describe the elders is overseers. Overseers, just the same word that we saw there in the book of Ezra. So the primary responsibility of the elders is very similar to the priests in the Old Testament. It is to ensure that God's blueprint for the church is followed as is prescribed in God's word and to equip and oversee God's people in doing the work he's called us to do. We're sort of like player coaches where we get along your side and we're participants just like your participants, but we also have that role to coach, to equip, and again, to provide accountability to ensure that we're following the biblical blueprint. Look at the third truth. We not only see the passion of the people, the pattern that they followed, but now look at their praise to God. In their long, dark night of exile in a foreign land, they were unable to find within them a song of praise to sing to God. Listen as I read that reference, Psalm 137, verses 1 and 4. It's referring to this. It says, by the rivers of Babylon. It's talking about the Jewish people that have been taken into captivity. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And they wept, why? Because they realized they were there as a result of their own sin as God's hand was forced to judge them because they were going down a path of self-destruction and he had to arrest that. And it was in that captivity that he got their attention once again. He began to regain their affections and their allegiance, preparing their hearts for this return that we see in Ezra. But notice, it says they sat down and wept. And then he says, when we remembered Zion, when we remembered Jerusalem, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. So we just hung up our harps on the trees. For there... Our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Of course, in, in, uh, in trying just to rub it in, their, their, their miserable lot, and the fact that they were slaves and captives now. And then they raised the question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And the point I want you to see is they had difficulty singing in Babylon because they realized the depths of their sin had brought them there and they were in a miserable place. But now go back to that third point in your notes and pick up where we left off. Now in a foreign land, they were unable to find within them a song to praise, uh, to, to sing, uh, a, a song of praise to sing to God. But now, but now back in Jerusalem, they can't stop praising God in song for his Loving kindness. His loving kindness in restoring his people. Look at Ezra chapter 3 verse 11. What a beautiful verse. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. 
You remember where Jeremiah found his hope that we alluded to just a moment ago? And the fact that God's loving kindness, what? Never ceases. That his mercies never fail. That they are new every morning. And as God has restored them, they realize we're only here because of God's infinite mercy and compassion and grace. That and that alone. So they can't, they can't hold back the praise. They can't hold back the song. And then notice, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, I want you to see where God actually foretold this very moment, years before it happened. Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 33. Now, we're going to go back to Ezra, so keep your hand there, but go to Jeremiah chapter 33. Let me begin reading at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 11 because this is an absolutely magnificent passage. Again, where God, through the prophet of Jeremiah, actually foretold this very moment that we just read about. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, by the way, at this point, Jeremiah is in prison. Who's imprisoned him? It's not the Babylonians. It's the Jewish people because he'd been trying to tell them they need to repent of their sin to avert God's judgment. And they mocked Jeremiah. They scorned Jeremiah, and they have him in prison. And right now, the city is under siege by the Babylonians. And he goes on, he says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city, referring to Jerusalem, and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. You hear what he's saying? They're under siege. They're, 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 they're held up in the city behind the walls. And so they've literally torn down their homes and their palaces to help reinforce the siege mounds to try to hold off the Babylonians. But, of course, it did no good. Look at verse 5. Well, while they were coming to fight with the Chaldeans and filled them with the corpses of men, whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I've hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. So because of their wickedness, God hid his face. He turned for them. He allowed the Babylonians to come. Many were killed, were slain in that warfare, and many, many others, as we've already alluded to, taken captivity into Babylon. But then look at this wonderful promise in verse 6. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. Again, the final word is never the failure of God's people. It's the triumph of God's love. Verse 7, and I will restore the fortunes of Judah. No, it's God said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild them as they were at first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy. 
praise and glory before all the nations of the earth, which I shall hear of all the good that I do for them. And they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is a waste without man and without beast. And that's exactly how the Babylonians left it. That it is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man and without inhabitant and without beast. You're going to, in the future, hear the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, and here it is, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. That's exactly the language that's used in Ezra as they praise God. And of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord, for I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. Now, what is the application for us today? Look there in your notes at Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him, through Jesus then, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. In other words, as we focus on Jesus, who He is, what He did for us through His death, burial, and resurrection, how can we contain our praise as children of God who even today sin and backslide? In His mercy, He disciplines us, restores us. How can we not praise Him? for His faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness, that we do have a God whose loving kindness will never cease. His mercies will not fail us. He will be faithful to complete the good work He has begun in us. But then look at the fourth truth. And sadly... This is where we have to end today. The paralysis that halted the work. You, you, would, you would hope to read, and they rebuilt the temple, and everybody lived happily ever after. Well, it just didn't happen that way. There were, the, they laid the foundation. And we're, we're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks. They laid, laid the foundation, and then there were some factors that came into play And you know how long the work was halted for? Fifteen years. They lay the foundation, all this excitement, exuberance, celebration. And then these two factors come into play. And the work literally comes to a standstill for 15 years. And then what we're going to see, and this is one of the most exciting parts of the story. God raises up two men. Two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And they come and they rebuke the people for not continuing the work. They encourage the people. And through their ministry, the Spirit of God stirs in their hearts. And we're going to see they complete the work on the temple. But let's look at what caused this paralysis And this first point is extremely interesting. The first thing that caused the paralysis was nostalgia from within. Nostalgia from within. Now read with me there. 
the adults old enough to remember Solomon's temple. And there were adults in the group that would have been in their 70s that would have had the ability to remember Solomon's temple, to have seen it. Instead of praising God when the foundation for the new temple was laid, wept in disappointment, believing the new temple paled in comparison to this one. And this literally infected the community with a mood of gloom and futility that the temple to be rebuilt would never match the grandeur of the old temple or the expectations of the older adults. Look at verses 12 and 13 of Ezra chapter 3. So after mentioning this, this wonderful celebration of song, shout of praise, verse 12, yet... Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, folks, this is a very, very important point. And, uh, and I th- hopefully these applications will mean a lot. And, and it can be applied today. I mean, just take our church. You know, in terms of attendance, in terms of size, uh, the peak for this church was 1985. And I know that for a fact because I was a minister of education at the time. And so, you know, this, this church right now pales in comparison to what we were in the mid-80s in terms of size, in terms of numbers, and those of us that are old enough to remember those days, we need to be very careful that we don't make the same mistake. And look at the, look at the applications, and there's four. First, God's people are never to equate spiritual success with or put their trust in material blessing, nicer facilities, or greater numbers. God's people are never to equate spiritual success with or put their trust in material blessing, nicer facilities, or greater numbers. This is one of the grave mistakes that led the Jews into captivity in the first place. We don't have time to go to Jeremiah 7, but I encourage you to do that on your own. This again is Jeremiah. And this is prior to the Babylonian captivity, it's prior to the invasion. And he, and, he, and he rails against the people. He says, you come into the temple, you come to worship God, and you say, oh, the temple, the temple, look how great it is. Micah the prophet actually acknowledges that the people thought they had some sort of special immunity from God's judgment, from any calamity, because of the presence of the temple. How great how marvelous, how wonderful it was, and all the rituals, all the services that they were going through. Jeremiah looks at him and says, stop saying temple, temple. Amend your ways. You're straying from God. Your heart's not with God. You're just going through a lot of motions. There's no heart of worship in you. You've just been eaten up in gratification. You, you, your walk with God 
has deteriorated to such an extent where, yeah, you still talk about God, you'll still even pray to God, but you've reduced God to be your servant to get what you want. That you believe God is at your disposal to serve your self-gratification. And that's exactly what happened to the Jewish people, and that's exactly what's happening in the church of the United States of America today. We see God more for his, what he can do for us, his benefits, while neglecting the responsibilities that he's put on us, while neglecting the fact that we've been called to be that bride to love him as our first love, to be that body of Christ to walk as he walked, to love one another, to love a lost world. I mean, just examine our prayers. Examine our prayers, how we pray what we pray for. Now again, I'm not trying to say how we pray or what we pray for is wrong. The tragedy is it's so terribly narrow. It's just around me and my little world. God heal me. God bless me. Meet this need. Help Aunt Sue's stub toe or whatever it is this would be and we never get beyond that. It's, it's, it's never where we get lost in God's majesty and glory and worship. And we're just consumed with a passion to extend his presence in this world, to express his character, to exalt Christ, to edify those who are saved and to engage the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's happened to them. They became very, very selfish. Ezekiel, another prophet that lived during this time, matter of fact, was led into captivity in that first deportation of Jews, he makes the fact that they come to him longing to hear his messages. He says, I'm like a central song to you. And they praise him. But then he nails it and he says, you don't give a hoot about God. You only give a hoot about your selfish desires. What's at the very depth of your heart is just your own selfish lust and gratification. And what we need to understand and it's just this simple. What is success in the Christian life? What is success in any church? It's one thing, and one thing only, developing Christ-like character. And if that's not happening, anything else that's happening that appears to be great, good, bigger, and better, it is the epitome of counterfeit and deceit that keeps us from getting to authentic Christianity. And authentic Christianity is about the inside, Amen. about the, my heart, about the heart of this church. What makes us tick? What is our passion and our pursuits? Look at the second application. If you're not careful, if you're not careful, spiritual nostalgia, will lead to longing for the past, complaining about the present, and dreading the future. This not only produces ingratitude for what God is doing today, but creates a sideline grumbler who discourages the faith of others and criticizes leadership. Now, we don't have time. We, we will be looking at these passages. But Haggai 2 I mean, he rebukes the people from comparing this temple to the older temple. 
And in rebuking them, he encourages Zerubbabel, don't get discouraged, go forward. I'm going to bless this temple like I'd never bless Solomon's temple, he says. You go to Zechariah, that passage, he, he nails them for despising small things. As if God can't work through small things. If God is limited, that he needs something big and great and grand. I mean, folks, just study church history. You, you, you see God doing more through a people that are persecuted, that have no facilities, that have to come together in hiding to worship, than in a situation like this where we have total freedom to come together. That Isaiah 43, I will read that. Let me read that for you. Because this passage is actually set in this historical time. He says, verse 18, do not call to mind the former things. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. And that's what he was doing in the day of Jerubbabel with this first return of Jews. And, the, and, the, and those older folks just missed it because they were so focused on the grandeur of the, of the old temple. He says, Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people who I have formed for myself will declare my praise. Look at the next application. In running the Christian race, We're not admonished to look back, but look forward to what God has for us next. Now, let me me just quickly say, when we're talking about nostalgia, we're not trying to say that as believers we're never to look back. we're, We're admonished to look back, to recall God's faithfulness and blessing, but only to encourage us to follow Christ today. If I look back and it just keeps me there, does no good. Look at Philippians 3, verse 13, 14. Paul said this, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then look at this next application, and this is where we'll end today. Focus on Christ-like character development that is not dependent on external crutches. If my walk with God, my joy in Christ, or peace with God is dependent on anything external, even like a worship service like this, the song service, if my Christian life is dependent on that, I can't have joy without that. I can't have peace without that. How authentic is it? Look at what Paul said in Philippians 4, verses 11, 13. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And remember, he's writing this toward the end of a four-year imprisonment. 
where he wasn't a part of any worship services. He wasn't a part of any group singing. He was literally chained to the Praetorian Guard 24-7. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity without it getting to my head. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And what's the answer? I can do all things through him who what? Strengthens me. And this gives me the great opportunity to remind you of the challenge that I gave you at the very first of this calendar year. I challenge you to pray every day the two prayers in the book of Ephesians. And that Ephesians 3 prayer is all about the inner man, what we're talking about. That's where we want to know authenticity, where, he, where we're to pray, God, grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit in the inner man, in the inner man. That we might know Christ dwelling as the preeminent one there in our hearts. Rooted and grounded in his love. To enjoy, experience the length, depth, breadth, and height of his love. To be filled with his fullness. That he might be extended and expressed through us. And to know him as that power at work in us. Him doing exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything that we could ask or think or pray. Not in external things, but where? The heart. The heart. Father, a special challenge today uh, to all of us out of the book of Ezra. As the people uh, begin to rebuild the temple. We see their, their passion. We see the pattern they followed, the praise. But then sadly, the paralysis that came to the work. A paralysis that was rooted in a misplaced nostalgia. Where those older adult men became so focused on the grandeur of the old temple that they couldn't even see what God was doing. That day, they could not even appreciate it. They fell into the depths of disappointment and despair, their expectations not being met, thinking God had failed them, that God had failed the returning Jews. Father, guard us from that same mistake today. Give us the grace, like Paul, to forget what lies behind, to look forward to what's next what you have planned for us as individuals, for our families, for our church family. And we would give ourselves enthusiastically to that. In faith, placing our hope and our trust and our confidence totally on you, believing faithful is he who calls us who also do it. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.